so we're back and uh, hopefully I, I hope that the midterm went well I have submitted the, uh, the Scantron sheets immediately for scanning so you should probably have your grades for that early next week with the, with the midterm so today we're going to talk about a few different things um, I'll start it off with some announcements because I know probably a lot of you have questions about what is going to happen if there is a strike. Uh, I will be teaching. I will be continuing to teach. Um, and I'll talk about that more in a little bit of a, in a moment. But let's talk about first what's on the agenda today. So today we'll just do a quick review of paint. We're leaving that unit behind and we're going now to a little bit more biologically oriented material luminescence and the biology of organisms that are bioluminescent and produce their own light. So we'll be talking about what glass is because last time we left off with an introduction to a very famous glass artist, Dale Chihuly, who incorporates vivid colors in all of his works and creates these amazing structures on a huge scale that he's exhibited both in galleries he has a permanent gallery in Seattle and in galleries around the world. And he also has put them outside in Venice, put them on a river in Finland. So it's really, it's, uh, it's, it's a spectacle to see. And it's really interesting to see how the color is enhanced sort of by the reflective properties of glass and the fact that glass reflects and refracts light in many interesting ways. So we'll talk a little bit more about that today. And then I'll just show you a couple pictures. We'll do a sort of a virtual field trip through pictures of um, some images that I took when I went to the Dale Jehuli Museum in October of uh, 2017. Then we're going to get into luminescence. And you could probably tell I was really keen on the, bio, on the uh, luminescent paint. I love glowing things. So we'll talk about a lot of glowing things today and also what the difference between fluorescence and luminescence is because there is actually a difference with that. So we're going to talk about marine luminescence, undersea luminescence essentially, and then we're going to leave off for today. So next week when we pick up after the strike, I'll be doing a little bit more on bioluminescence and then we'll be moving on to a unit on minerals and gemstones. So before I get right into the material, a couple announcements. Uh, the first is your assignment one marks are out. They are posted on Moodle. Um, I apologize for this. Unfortunately, it seems that there was some confusion with the TAs. And I am aware of the fact that many people did not have question 12 which was worth 28 marks, so quite a large chunk of that assignment marked. Um, for some reason, problems with opening the attachment and so forth. So some of you have emailed me already and I've remarked that question, but if you haven't yet checked your assignment one, please go in, take a look at it, make sure your number 12 is marked, because you know, that is a large chunk of the marks, it's important that you have that. And if you see something is wrong or it's not marked, email me and I will go through your assignment and remark it. Second assignment. Uh, so I, I know that it was probably quite a crunch with midterms 
not just in this course, but in all of your courses last week. So I am giving an extension on the second assignment, which is your die essay. You have till March 9th to submit that. Um, I've said to you, I sent an email saying that, that this is an optional extension. And the reason I'm saying it's optional is because if you want to hand it in today or hand it in before, anytime before the 8th, so it, well, a couple days at least before the 8th, March 8th is the last date by which you can drop this course without receiving a grade. So if you need to know your assignment to Mark prior to the drop date, please send it in earlier. I will mark it, get it back to you, and then you can sort of weigh your options if you're considering dropping the course. Um, and the last thing I want to talk about is this possible, this labor dispute, the possible strike. Um, I think this negotiating has been going on yesterday, today, and by tomorrow, I believe, we will know the results. But it's kind of, while it's good to be optimistic, it kind of looks like a strike might happen. Um, when that happens, QP, which is your TA sort of union, will be striking. They will blockade campus, campus entrances, the driving entrances. They cannot blockade the subway because that's a health and safety hazard. So um, I will be continuing to lecture. I will continue to post all of the lecture recordings online. So if you can't make it in or if you don't want to cross the picket line, that's fine. Uh, you'll still have access to the lectures online. Um, you will not be penalized for any material um, that I cover during the strike. What will probably end up happening, depending on how long this strike goes, is um, the classes will be extended into April and the exam period will be at sort of at the end of April, maybe beginning of May. But hopefully it doesn't go that long. Um, I've been a, an undergraduate student at York during strikes and I know it's difficult. You're anxious to get your marks. So I really do have your best interests at heart. I had said in an email which I, again, a couple apologies today. I apologize for the email because I spoke to my um, division Nats and I actually cannot mark your, your papers individually given that the TAs obviously have a contract and they have a certain number of hours assigned to them. So in the email I sent out earlier, I said I would just be marking your papers individually so that I could get you the marks back as quickly as possible. Um, I cannot do that. In, uh, given the, uh, the union rules, basically. Okay. Does anybody have any questions about any of this? Yeah. I think the university is staying open. There was a tweet issued that said, all classes that can continue will continue, which would mean the whole university would be open, and I would think the, li the library would be open. Yeah. Buses will... Um, they cannot, they usually the TTC, because to show solidarity with the union, they will not come into campus, but they will drop you off outside of campus or at the, the new subway station where they stop normally. But they will not come in, I mean, they don't, I don't think they come in anymore to the very hall sort of circle, but they won't be able to come into campus. Yeah. This, right, and I'm glad you brought it up, yeah. 
Uh, right. That is a, I, I've heard the same rumor, and I know that that is, is something that has been discussed, which is potentially whatever mark you have in the grade, the un if this, this strike happens, perhaps the university may just give you that mark. To be honest, I think that's unlikely to happen. Um, and I'm sure that there would be grieving processes. But I, I think that that's more talk at, than anything else at this stage. I could be completely wrong. But I know that that, that is kind of a, a scary thing. So, so far, that's why I say I will not be able to mark anything more for you. But I think we should basically wait to that. If that happens, what you will be able to do is, I'm sure they will extend that drop date. So let's say they give you the mark. Uh, by necessity, they'll have to give you kind of a floating drop date. And so it's, if you don't like that mark and it's going to be final, you can drop the course. So. Okay, any, any other questions? Okay, then let's get started into the material. And let's start with a, with a clicker question. First clicker question of the day. So parietal art refers to art that is A, done by prehistoric peoples, B, done by prehistoric peoples on cave walls, done by pariahs, a partial remnant of original artwork, or clay-based, clay-based art. See if I want to keep it. Try the last one. The cool one. Okay. All right. I'll shut this off now. So parietal art. Yes, it refers to art that's done by prehistoric peoples on cave walls. We talked about the famous Lascaux cave in France last time, which had some of the first human um, color artwork. And that was about dating from 17,000 years ago. But just to remind you, this was the slide on parietal art, where we have a number of different eras, which I will not expect you to know the actual names, but just for your reference, we have art going back all the way to 70,000 BC from Africa. And the more sort of common, the most common cave art that we see in this time period is called Franco-Cantabrian. And it's from about 40,000 to 10,000 BC. So those Lascaux caves are an example of sort of Franco-Cantabrian parietal art. And if you recall, they had some really beautiful vivid reds, which were ochre colors. And they had some blacks, which were carbon. Um, white sort of earth tone colors because these were the natural pigments that were available to them at the time. 
So which one of the following is not one of the three main constituents of paint? We talked about paint last time. Which of those is not one of the main constituents? Is it a pigment, a mordant, a binding medium, or a solvent? Try to remember the previous lecture on paint. We talked about three components. Okay. interesting. So the answer for this one is actually B, a mordant. When we talked about paints, we talked about the three properties which were pigment, the main property obviously, the thing that gives the paint its color, the binding medium, and a solvent. So let's take a quick review of that. Uh, we'll take a review after one more question, which again deals with two of the three properties. So when we talk about something called the vehicle of the paint, I mentioned this last time, we're referring to these two constituents. So what is the vehicle, the title of the vehicle referred to? Is it the pigment and the solvent? The pigment and the binding medium? The binding medium and the solvent? the extender and the binding medium, or the volatiles and extenders in the paint. All right, everybody got answers in? So the answer for this one is C, the binding medium and the solvent. So if you think about paint, and you think about paint as an agent of color, something that's delivering color to a surface, you can think of the vehicle of that color delivery is basically this solvent and the binding medium. The thing that's being delivered, the thing that's going in the vehicle is the pigment. So the pigment is not known as part of the vehicle of paints. But let's just review that. Here was a slide from last time on paints. So we recall that, oh, okay. Recall that the paints have, paints have uh, three basic sort of properties, constituents. And one second, let me just take this. All right, okay. So paints are mixtures, paints are colloids. They're basically mixtures in which the particles do not dissolve in the water. They're basically suspended in a solvent. 
And the three main constituents are the pigment or the pigment particle that gives the paint its distinctive color, the binding medium or the binder. So remember last time I showed a bunch of pictures of, of classical art, a lot of old masters sort of artworks. And at that time, does anybody remember the binding medium that they would use to mix the pigment particles into, into their paint mixture? Well, it was a natural one because obviously they didn't have a lot of synthetic manufacturing at that point. It was egg yolk. So they mixed pigment particles with a binding medium of egg yolk or tempera binding medium. So the binding media is sometimes also called a resin or a matrix. And it's just that substance which hardens and lets the paint stick on the surface. And finally, we have a solvent. Remember that paint is a mixture, so the solvent is the thing that it's mixed within. The pigment particles are mixed into a liquid, which is the solvent, and it dissolves the binding medium to give this paint a different consistency, to give it a better fluidity. And these two are known as the vehicle. There were two other constituents of paints that we talked about, and these were um, additives, which are things that are added to the paint to change the properties of the paint, like the drying time, make a paint dry more quickly, make it easier to work with. So these are additives. And there are also extenders, which essentially are what the name sounds like, makes the color go further. Extenders typically are larger sized particles put into a paint mixture to make the coverage extend more uh, thoroughly. They also approve things like adhesion, say adhesion to the, to the canvas or paper or wood or whatever it is that you are painting. So I think I said it earlier, I keep saying my answers and giving them away. That's okay. But so where is the, uh, if you remember from last time, where's the Chihuly Museum located? Because we're just about to take a virtual photo tour of it. Let's see if you recall. So is it located in Seattle, Venice, Finland, Toronto, or New York City? now. I think that's an easy one. And it is located in Seattle. It's located there because that's where he's from. And it's a permanent installation there. Although we did have an exhibit here in Toronto, I think it was back in 2016 at the, the Gardner Ceramic Museum. So let's, uh, let's revisit the glass gardens and the glass museum in Seattle. As you can see, the colors are so vibrant, they just really pop out at you. And these glass sculptures are just so large 
that photographs don't really do it justice. You have to actually be there and see it yourself. You notice at the bottom, often underneath a lot of the glass sculptures, when they're in artificial environments, like indoors, there's sort of a black reflective mirror-like substance, obsidian-like looking base. Um, and again, that just adds another level of depth to the color and, uh, and deepness of the glass. But before we do our virtual tour, we want to know a little bit more about glass. Specifically, what is glass? And glass is essentially just sand. It's sand heated to its melting point, sand mixed with fire, until it becomes a sort of gelatinous pseudo-liquid substance. The picture that you see here is a modern industrial process of how we create common glass in our, this day and age. Um, the most glass you see around you is called soda lime silica glass. And what's happening in making soda lime silica glass is a lot of recycling. The nice thing about glass is you can recycle it um, and you can even add chemicals to it if it were colored to make it turn back to be clear. So when we're doing this industrial process, we use a lot of waste recycled glass. We take the recycled glass, we take more sand, soda or sodium carbonate, calcium carbonate or lime, which, comes, which is limestone, throw it into a very, very hot furnace that has to be above at least 1,700 degrees, more like 2,400 degrees Celsius, uh, heat it up, and then deposit it in a very interesting process. A sheet glass is made by floating the glass, the liquefied glass, on molten metal. And then the glass sort of is flat and it has an even surface. And this is how we get our sheet glass that's used in windows, that's used in mirrors, etc. Glass is what is called an amorphous solid. So if you look at that word amorphous, amorphous, anything with an A, amorphous or A something means not. So amorphous or means no shape, not shaped. Um, and all that means really is that glass, you know, it's been this sort of liquefied form. And when it does solidify, it does not have a tr traditional crystalline structure that most solids have. So this is why it's called an amorphous solid. The crystalline structure is lacking. Obviously, this process requires a huge amount of heat. So you don't see examples of glass art from prehistoric times when people were painting in caves because although you could, they, they had fire, they knew how to use fire, they were not able to produce fires hot enough to be melting and creating, melting the sand to its melting point and producing glass. This only was discovered and happened later on. It actually was kind of discovered in, by the Phoenicians in Syria about 5,000 years ago. And the earliest example we have of glass is from ancient Egypt which is about 3,500 years old. So the heating process and the process of having this furnace, and actually it goes through a series of furnaces, 
is what allows us to have such good glass production these days. So the melting point of sand is, as I said before, about 1,700 degrees Celsius. And you mix that with sodium carbonate, or soda ash. And what that does when you mix it is it brings down, it's impure then, with the sand is mixed with the soda, that lowers the melting point of the sand. So it allows the sand to melt at a lower temperature, which makes it easier for us to heat it up and melt it properly. But there's one catch. And the catch is when you add that soda to the sand and lower the melting point, the type of glass that's produced is really strange. It actually dissolves in water. So that's no good. So in order to make sure that the glass doesn't dissolve, we add limestone or calcium carbonate and it prevents this dissolving of your glass. What about nature? Are there examples of naturally produced glass? Well, there are actually. And if we think about it, what is it that we require to create glass? We require sand and we require extreme heat. So in a lot of cases, uh, a naturally occurring glass creation scenario would be in a meteor impact, a meteorite impact. When something with extreme heat hits an area where there's sort of sand uh, around, this can create a kind of glass-like substance. Another way is basically uh, through man-made things that are not so pleasant, like uh, nuclear weapons. I mentioned in one of the previous lectures when we were talking about hydrogen and isotopes of hydrogen, that when you remove um, protons from hydrogen, you get different things called isotopes, and one of these is called tritium. So in the 1940s, when the first nuclear weapons were being tested at Alamogordo Weapons Test Range in New Mexico, when the bomb was detonated, and this is in the middle of the desert with lots of sand around, the bomb was detonated and instantly sort of created this glass-like material, which is a hydrogen that had tritium in the bomb. So it created this material called trinitite. And pieces of trinitite are actually a, a collector's item. Um, there are a lot of artificially produced pieces of trinitite around that people try to sell as original Trinity test site. The weapon site was called Trinity test site at Alamogordo. So if you come across these, these are, these are hot collector's items if you have an original piece of the Trinity uh, weapons test site, Trinitite. Hopefully we won't be producing a lot more of anything like this. It's not just the Trinity test site, it happens at other sites as well of any sort of large heat, um, massive kind of a weapon. So what about glass blowing? Okay, we're, we have sand, we're melting sand. It certainly doesn't occur to you to take something that's molten hot and then blow into it. Not usually. How did glass blowing come about? Well, it is quite an old and ancient art. As I mentioned to you before, the earliest piece of glass, the kind of blown glass that we have, is from ancient Egypt 3,500 years ago. But the Roman historians who wrote about all of this 
uh, said that it was really the Phoenicians who had the first sort of glass and glass blowing about 5,000 years ago. Nonetheless, glass blowing's origins, so that the, you, we can attribute that to sort of the Phoenicians in the area of Syria. It started in Syria around the first century BC. The idea of using tubes to blow into glass, inflate the glass, and create vessels which are useful for drinking, decorative, etc. So first glass blowing was in Syria, and it spread all over the um, sort of the Middle East at this point. It spread to Egypt, and how do we know? Well, we have beautiful glass examples from Egypt. We also have papyri showing a glass blowing shop with, uh, with some, some um, happy people sort of doing the glass blowing process. What about color? You do see these beautiful blown, and you've probably seen these mosaic-like blown glass um, vases, often pitchers. How do we get color in the glass? If we're just taking sand, melting it at a high temperature and adding sort of metals. Well, we get color in glass by adding metal oxides and sulfur oxides in ground powdered form. This wasn't something that was intuitive. And in fact, it was pretty much found out by accident, probably some contamination in the sand mixture when people were blowing glass. But they saw and they noticed that it created different kinds of colors, which prompted experimentation with a number of different substances. And now we know very well how to produce an array, the whole spectrum of colors, almost, with glass. And the way you do this, metal and sulfur oxides. This picture here shows these rod-like structures. And the rod-like structures are called canes. You can think of a cane, sort of like a bamboo cane. They're thin rods of colored glass, which you obtain by mixing in the metal or mixing in the sulfur. Uh, and they're sort of rolled, basically the glass is stretched out and rolled into these rods called canes. And you can see they can be quite intricate. They can have pieces of colored glass wrapped around clear glass, many different kinds of ways. And this gives you the color. And, and it, you can roll, you cut the canes up in small pieces, roll your molten glass in it, put it back into the furnace, the whole thing melts and you get your color. There's other ways though to get even more spectacular color effects. And the way that this is done by something called murine. So murine, it's plural, it's the singular form is murina. And murina are just these canes which are produced and cut into small segments. And the cross section gives you a beautiful pattern. So you can imagine it has concentric circles. There's a very famous kind of glass pattern called Millefiori, which is um, a, a thousand flowers. And this comes from Murine. So what you can do is you get these canes. You have Murine cut up little pieces with intricate designs. You roll the glass in it, and you can get these 
rolled out patterns on the glass. Some people actually made miniatures, portraits, and, and all kinds of creative things from, from Murine, cut glass beads. And you probably recognize that, uh, that name. Here's an example of a, a sheet, a Murina sheet. So you can see these are the pieces, and they're put onto a glass sheet. This person has sort of something that's basically going to be assembled, the glass, and you can roll it while it's still molten in this sheet and produce all kinds of interesting effects. If the name sounds familiar to you, that's because of good reason. This is where Murano glass comes from. It was first produced in, uh, in Venice, from in Murano, which is like an island in the then independent city-state of Venice. And here's an example. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sure you'll probably recognize examples of Murano glass. They're often used to make paperweights with some quite um, intricate patterns inside that have the depth and three-dimensionality. Um, they're used also, these are quite popular now as well, these sort of evil eye amulets, and you'll see people with chains of those or bracelets. And this is an example of, of Murano glass, originally from Venice. It was a luxury item when it was first produced, so only the very rich could afford it. Um, and if you go to, uh, are able to go to Venice, you'll still see a lot of the original examples of beautiful Murano glass art. They have quills, they have containers. It's really um, very delicate work. So we've talked about how to produce the color in glass. Let's look at some examples of some, ex some interesting colors in glass. We had this slide last time, and that's me standing there, but that's just to show you the scale of this incredibly tall glass sculpture that was done by Dale Chihuly. It's called Seascape. So we talked about blues a lot in this course, and we talked about cobalt blue glass, which is a beautiful, rich, dark, purpley blue glass. And you get that by an additive. So you add in cobalt, and you have cobalt silicate. You also have cobalt blue paint pigment, which comes from a similar process, adding something, which is basically cobalt oxide, and you add aluminum, and you get this dark cobalt blue paint. So you can see in this picture, you've got several examples of, well, the whole thing, actually, this particular piece was done using variations of cobalt and antimony for the white. So you can see how this was, was assembled. In terms of what the actual additives are to produce which colors, I don't expect you to memorize this. But this is more for your information. Uh, we have figured out, or very early on in glass making, people figured out what sort of things to add to the glass to give you your rainbow spectrum, your blue, violet, emerald, green, yellows, and red. So it's kind of interesting that red is gold chloride. It's not, again, this is not intuitive. But you would say, oh yes, I know I will add this, because it looks like this. This was something that was arrived upon. All of these things were discovered by thorough experimentation. 
So let's see an example of all of these things. Cobalt oxide, chromic oxide, uranium oxide, cadmium sulfide, sulfur, and gold chloride. So we're going to take a quick photo tour. So as you know uh, very well by now, the Dale Chihuly Museum and Gardens is in Seattle. It's actually right next to the famous Space Needle. So you can look at this, you can be on the observation deck of the Space Needle and look down and see all the beautiful glass sculptures in the gardens amongst nature. It's really, it's very nice. When you walk into this museum, um, we talk about color and light a lot in the course. Light really basically is color. Understanding light is, in a way, understanding color. And this whole exhibit is built around both light and color. So you walk into a very dark area and you see these biological looking forms. And what is happening here, these are lit by neon gas inside the lights. Something we're going to talk about today is luminescence and fluorescence. Neon lights are an example of luminescence. The neon gas is excited and emits electrons at a certain wavelength, specifically blue-violet, and you get these beautiful, glowing, neon-looking materials. In terms of history about Chihuly himself, he was actually an architect. So you'll notice that a lot of his, he has a, a a real grasp of form and structure, and basically what got him started on his big glass masterpieces were making glass bowls. Bowls, um, and also vases, sculptures, but these bowls and sculptures that he was making basically had influence in Navajo art. So you can see these Navajo blankets in the background, and he used a lot of the Navajo colors in his art. One of the other interesting things he always says is that glass, you can think of it as something coming from the sea because it's sand and it's heated. You know you have undersea volcanoes. You do get hot heat sources underground, underwater I should say. But he always said it makes sense The glass comes from sand. I'm going to, to sculpture and, and basically create seascapes as a natural extension of where glass comes from. So you can see these have crabs, some crabs crawling on anemone-looking things up here. And um, also these are some sea serpents down here. And of course, this is the famous seascape. This is another view without me obstructing it. And you've got all your cobalt blue glass. There's a little bit of orangey, a little bit of pink in there, but just to show you the absolute detail of the structure, here's a close-up showing you the detail. And again, this rich, dark cobalt glue glass is prevalent in a lot of this work. When you go to the next room, it's more seascapes, but this time the seascapes aren't just blue, the seascapes are a massive collaboration, massive sort of mix of colors. Uh, I'll show you a quick video going through what these look like. This is a video I made when I was there. It's 
it's just a few seconds. But to show you, oops. Again, I'm sorry I can't give you a sense of the scale. It doesn't translate, but hopefully the video will make it be a little more clear. So the first, this is walking into the seascape room. The width of this is about the width from here to the first row of seats. And the length is probably about the length of this lecture hall. The next room is a glass ceiling, which is, the light source is obviously behind, above the glass. So it creates all these beautiful reflections and you've got this sort of myriad of colors or it's like a rainbow room essentially with glass diffusing the light down below. And there's a closer picture of the glass ceiling showing you all of the different, oh, it didn't. The glass ceiling showing you a lot of the different reflections and refractions of the glass, that is the bending of the light, that are caused by a light source passing through these glasses. The next part of the exhibit basically gives you a tour of these sculptures and a lot of the chandeliers. We watched a video last time which showed Tahuli mounting chandeliers in Venice over canals in archways. Uh, these are some of the chandeliers and to give you again an idea of the scale, this blue one is hung from the ceiling but it is probably about six, six or seven feet long. And lastly, going back to his origination of the bowls, there's a beautiful room of sort of colored intricate bowls. Now this bowl here, this really lovely blue, we can think already, we know what causes those colors in glass. So the blues would be the cobalt, the antimonies would be the white. And this is probably produced, I'm not absolutely certain, but from looking at the patterns on this, this is probably produced by uh, Murine, using a Murana, sorry, Murina sheet and rolling the glass in the Murina sheet and then getting this sort of explosion of diffused colors out. And uh, this is the conclusion of the exhibit, basically. He has some beautiful sort of orange cadmium colored glasses mounted in the ceiling of an atrium type room. This is outside. The gardens continue for quite a while outside. And this may be even more spectacular in some senses because you see these sculptures that look almost alien in this outdoor environment. He also uses mirrors. So these sort of black balls and the black sort of plant-like fronds, these are black glass with slightly mirrored, basically aluminum was allowed to evaporate on that black glass slightly, so you have this slightly mirrored surface and sort of an amethyst looking crystal tower in the background. And that is, that is the tour of the Chihuly Museum. If you do get to see it, please go and see it. It's, uh, it was 
I was fortunate to be there in fall with the colors changing, so it made nice sort of contrasts with these glass sculptures in the background. And as you can see, the Space Needle is sort of looming over the gardens here. So I gave you before a list of basic colors, red, green, blue, yellow, orange, and glasses. Here's a more thorough list of what sort of additives, metal additives, are used to color glass. This is particularly important in gems and creating synthetic gems. So next week we're going to talk about gems and minerals. And you'll recognize a lot of the way that these gems are produced using these sort of compounds and these chemicals. you do not have to memorize this list. So just, it's there for your information, but I will not be asking you how do you produce such and such a color in glass on a test. And to wrap up our glass segment, and then we'll go for the break, I'll just show you this three minute video, which is showing you how the color is actually infused into the glass. Intense color, bursts of movement, shapes which seem to dance, yet remain suspended in time. The style could belong to just one man, Dale Chihuly. It's here at Chihuly's Boathouse Studio on the banks of Seattle's Lake Union that his Technicolor visions come to life, and where I came to do something I've always wanted to, get a lesson in the ancient art of glass blowing from the revolutionary artist himself. We're going to have you blow up the glass? I'm going to try. All right. Jihuly's designs are unmistakable. In just a few decades, he's breathed new life into an art that was largely unchanged for thousands of years. Yet his own view was dramatically altered more than 30 years ago after a car accident left him blind in one eye. You don't have any depth perception, is that correct? Well, yeah, I have no depth perception, no peripheral vision. That's the main reason why I quit blowing glass myself. As the pieces got bigger and the team got more complicated, I felt like pulling back away from uh, the making of it. But he is still very much in charge of each creation. Every piece begins with his vision, first as a painting, a blueprint for his team of skilled artists. God, I think that might be enough. That's enough. In just the last decade, Chihuly has staged nearly 100 shows and installations around the world. From hotels to museums, even the great outdoors, he continues to push the boundaries. How much of glass blowing is an art, the creativity that people have within them, and how much of it is learned? It's one thing to make it as a craft, to make beautiful objects that, that are, say, functional. But to make it as art, you have to make something that, that nobody's ever seen before. Maybe bring that one in a little bit. After nearly four decades, Chihuly remains one of the best teachers of this craft. And on this day, I am his student. You're up. <laughs> Do I need any protective gear? Okay. 
The heat is intense, though it should be when you're using an oven at 2100 degrees. With the molten glass nearly flowing off the rod, my first piece finds some definition in a mold. Okay, now go ahead and blow. Oh, hard. Good. Stop. The glass will require several more bursts of air, each observed and measured by my world-renowned coach. There we go. Good job. Okay, slow it down just a little bit. Good. Next up, color. So, Dale, what is this doing? You're picking up some cobalt. They'll blow out and be able to see the color a lot more. It is a quick, coordinated effort. The glass has to keep moving, has to stay hot. Turn, turn, turn. To maintain its shape. You're doing it just right. Stop. Before I know it, Dale and his team have helped me create a full collection. More beautiful than I'd hoped for, yet a far cry from the masterpieces this studio is known for. We can't thank you enough. I have even more appreciation now. Thank you. Well, my pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks for coming. So we shall go for the break now. Had your fill of glass blowing, and when we come back, we'll talk about luminescence. It is uh, 9.24, so let's come back at 9, 9.45. So we'll start again. And during the break, I, I had some more sort of questions about the strike. I know this is uh, worrisome. One thing I want to assure you of is that um, you will not be penalized for anything that you miss during the strike. It is up to you. You can choose to cross the picket line. You can choose to not cross the picket line. If you're walking, it's not, um, it's not a difficult thing in the sense that nobody's going to push you, nobody's going to shove you or hassle you. Uh, at least I, I certainly hope so. I, I do not think that will happen. The only crossing of the picket line sort of trouble comes if you're driving your car and basically you usually have to wait in 45 minute intervals. They let a certain number of cars through. But y you know, if, you, if you support the strike, that is totally fine. You do not have to come, you do not have to hand in anything. So assignments, uh, you cannot be penalized for missing any assignments during the strike. You cannot be penalized for any tests. And I cannot hold um, the, the ex final exam if the strike is still going on. I believe, I'll have to get verification on this, but I believe I cannot hold a final exam. But I, I will clarify that all for you. Any, any questions, concerns? Last, the last time this happened, they were um, actually QP2, the second unit went back to work and then the rest of the units went back to work, but they closed the university. But I do believe that in the past, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure of that. In the past, like many years ago, it went on for a very long time. Um, more recently, it hasn't gone on for terribly long, definitely not four weeks. So. I'm sorry, I know that doesn't really answer the question, um, 
but it is, it is likely that there will be some sort of back-to-work legislation if it carries on for several weeks. So we've seen these, these beautiful colors in glass, and it's a really um, powerful effect when you have colors and light used through glass due to the different refractive indices, and in mirrors. You get a sense of depth and richness. So let's talk about glass just a little bit more and the type of glass that we use to make mirrors and what mirrors are. So we have float glass which was what I told you before is that sheet of glass. The liquefied glass is deposited onto molten metal and then this becomes sheet glass. For something like a mirror we use this sheet glass to create mirrors. The way that a mirror is created, so most of our mirrors today are aluminum mirrors, is that the sheet glass within a vacuum chamber is exposed or allowed to have aluminum evaporate. It's sputtered on it, allowed to have aluminum evaporate on one surface of the sheet glass. And this gives you a reflective coating, which is your mirror. Again, like the Venetian glass that you saw, the Murano glass, mirrors really modern mirrors came into use in the Middle Ages, basically just before sort of the Renaissance era. They were notoriously difficult to produce. It was hard to get good enough sand to create pure glass that would reflect well enough and that didn't have uh, scratches, impurities, inconsistencies. So mirrors were extremely, extremely expensive to produce and most people did not have them. Only obviously the very wealthy could afford mirrors. Um, now they're a commonplace thing and um, we've learned a number of ways to produce excellent mirrors, some of which are used in telescopes, for example, for their reflecting and refracting properties of light. One thing you can do, or you, you may be able to do if you're get able to get tickets is a non-virtual field trip by of yourself. You can actually go to the Ontario Art Gallery, the AGO, Art Gallery of Ontario, and there is an exhibit now that uses glass and it uses mirrors and colors, sort of like an explosion of color in a series of small rooms. This is a, a very, it's a hot ticket exhibit. And I say, if you can, because tickets are only available online and they release them in small blocks. And people have been waiting and waiting to get these tickets. But the artist whose exhibit this is, is Yayoi Kusama. And she is kind of iconic. If you remember last time I showed you some paintings, some Andy Warhol paintings, pop art, those Campbell's soup cans. So Kusama is uh, an icon in fashion. She's very much involved in pop art. She's 88 years old. Um, and she's sort of mounting this exhibit. It's traveled around the world, and it's called Infinity Rooms. To show you what it actually looks like, so if you are interested in going but you're not able to get tickets, I've included a link here to this video. 
There are a series of six rooms. You can watch this video at home. It's pretty short, but you can see each of the six rooms in this video. And this one is just, it's just so beautiful. I, I wanted to show you something current with mirrors, color, and glass going on here in our city. This is one of the rooms, the infinity mirror. So an infinity mirror is when you take a mirror and you align it in a certain way so that it gives the illusion of reflecting onto infinity. So you could see tons of reflections of yourself going on to infinity. And this is the infinity mirror. So here is a room, one of Kusama's rooms, that uses color, light, and mirrors. As you can see, it's very beautiful, and I believe in the exhibit at the AGO, you're given 30 seconds in each room. Uh, they, it's only like, I think, standing room for two or three people at a time, so they, they stick you in there for 30 seconds, allow you to take a selfie, take a video, and then you move on to the next room. see some cobalt blue glass there and there's some oranges which would be cadmium um, so it is very very interesting that's about it I'll let you you've got an idea of what that looks like so do the other rooms uh, some of them have sort of dotted pumpkins and the artist actually has an interesting visual condition where she would see everything with dots so she's very much obsessed with polka dots, self-admittedly obsessed with, with dots. Uh, because the condition that she has, she sees dots on everything. So a lot of the color that she uses, very basic primary colors with lots of contrast with dots in, in, different, uh, in different geometrical shapes. Okay. So we'll move on now. Um, to luminescence. This picture is, you may recognize it sort of from the movie Avatar. It's an artist's sort of stitching together of several different frames from um, Avatar, which was on a planet. And, and in fact, for this movie Avatar, the director James Cameron um, commissioned a bunch of scientists to basically develop the idea of this planet and do a whole case study of the type of life that may exist on this planet and the flora and the fauna of the planet and the different sort of biological 
bioluminescent phenomena that occur on this planet. So if you've seen the movie, you know that when you go into this, this uh, I think it's called Pandora, to this planet, everything glows. It's really, really a striking, striking images. Luminescence, in other words, is glowing. You can think of luminescence as something that lights up or glows. So how is that different to fluorescence? Well, fluorescence is a form of luminescence. So you can think of it, think of it this way. Think of two definitions for luminescent. One is the English definition, which means luminous or luminescent lighting up and glowing. And one would be a physics definition, which describes the mechanism of how light is produced in an object. So these are, are a bit different. So with luminescence, luminescence essentially means a glowing object, a glowing object that produces its own light. Whereas fluorescence is an object that takes in UV light, remember it's a very short wavelength, it takes in the UV light, absorbs it, and then when it's dark, or when the lights turn off, it re-emits the UV light, but this time at a longer wavelength in the visible spectrum. So things like glow-in-the-dark t-shirts or glow-in-the-dark stars, all of these things are fluorescent. And you'll notice that if you have something that's glow-in-the-dark fluorescent, you expose it to a light or you put it right by a light and it gets brighter, it can, retains its charge for longer, because it's basically absorbing all this UV radiation from the light source and re-emitting it. So that's, that's the difference. So remember that the fluorescence is substance absorbing the UV light at a very short wavelength, re-emitting it, re-radiating this at a longer wavelength in the visible spectrum. And often fluorescent objects as seen here, are, tend to emit green light. This is just a function of, of what the photons are doing, the wavelengths of the photons that are emitted at. This particular picture is a dye. It's called fluorazine. And what you see here is a long cylinder that's used for fluid dynamics experiments. So you can use these kinds of glow-in-the-dark dyes as tracers to see what's happening in the water when, say, this cylinder is rotated or uh, compressed or sort of perturbed um, with rollers or something like that. And you get the fluorescence. It glows a deeper green, a more bright green, if you expose it to UV light because it's immediately getting a light source that it can then re-radiate in the visible as a bright green. There was, in fact, an experiment here at York, which was, you know, it's, it's actually not something that you think of doing uh, with this kind of a dye, but it was a glass, sort of a plastic glass, pseudo-plastic and glass sphere that was meant to simulate the Earth. It was filled with water. Fluorazine dye was injected into it. The sphere itself was rotated to simulate Earth's rotation. A couple of rollers were placed on either side of it to simulate tidal perturbations, like gravitation of the moon. And by studying how the fluorazine dye sort of spun around and had different kinds of patterns, uh, they were able to get an idea 
of what's going on in the magnetic field of the Earth and why the magnetic field flips and reverses and changes because of these instabilities in the die building up in one sense, collapsing and then building up in another sense. So there's lots of, of there are diverse uses for fluorescent dyes. They're also extensively used in medicine and sometimes you also get fluorescein eye drops so that the ophthalmologist can look into your eyes a little bit better. Just remember though that this is absorbing the UV light, not producing its own, it's re-emitting it. Whereas a luminescent object, something by the physical process, the physical mechanism of luminescence, is producing its own light. So an example of that are bioluminescent jellyfish. And if you're kind of unsure, is it fluorescence or luminescence, the fluorescent colors are usually green, the luminescent, the bioluminescent colors are usually blue, higher energy. This is actually an example of bioluminescence in nature. One of the most beautiful sort of forms of bioluminescence in nature is you may have seen pictures of water that seems to be glowing. And what's actually happening is there's sort of plankton, there's small microorganisms in the water called dinoflagellates, and they are bioluminescent. And when they're exposed to oxygen or sort of shaken up, they produce this beautiful blue gl glow. So when waves crash on the beach or when waves are sort of rolling in from shore, you have blue glowing waves. When you're swimming even in it, you have these blue glowing waves. So I'd like to show you an example of that. A passenger was murdered. The real killer is right here. As night falls on certain beaches around the world, the waves glow with an eerie blue light. Tiny neon dots that make it look as though stars are washing up on the shore. The phosphorescence only occurs when the microorganisms are agitated, such as when the water crashes under the shore, or someone steps on the wet sand, or a paddle hits the waves. The surreal scene arises not from magic, but from plankton that have evolved to glow in order to startle or distract fish and other potential predators. Some of the most spectacular photographs have been captured from one location, Vadu Island, Maldives, which has been nicknamed the Sea of Stars. The Maldives is a tropical nation in the Indian Ocean, composed of 26 ring-shaped atolls, which are made up of more than a thousand coral islands. The spotting of the Sea of Stars is dependent on climate and the plankton growth throughout the year. Visitors to the island have stated they have the most luck seeing the blue glow from about July to February, especially during a new moon since the darkness of the sky helps intensify the light. The glowing waters are the main reason why Vadu is one of the hottest tourist destinations in the world. The glowing blue waters are caused by a natural chemical reaction known as bioluminescence, where microorganisms in the water are disturbed by oxygen. The result is a glittering and sparkling seawater. 
As the waves crash on the beach, the water glows in the dark and gives the impression it is acting like a mirror that reflects the sparkling stars above. The phytoplankton's blue glow is like a defense mechanism, which wards off other marine organisms from eating them. Although this phenomenon of bioluminescence blue glowing water occurs on many islands and locations around the world, it is extraordinarily prominent on the island of Ardu, which only has a small population of about 550 people. Bioluminescent plankton are highly unpredictable even in Maldives. There is no time through the year that you can guarantee seeing it, but as stated earlier, people have had the most luck between July and February. Anyway, that's the end of this video. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. So, this is, uh, it would be spectacular to be able to see this, this site, the Sea of Stars. But as discussed previously, the organisms, and how you spell it is dinoflagellates. We'll talk a little bit more about them next time, and about the type of chemical that is responsible for producing this blue glow. But essentially they need to be physically disturbed, so it's an oxygen reaction that causes this glow, and this happens when they're exposed to air and physically sort of moved around and shaken up. Dinoflagellates by no means are the only um, bioluminescent organism, no is, nor is bioluminescence confined to sort of microorganisms. A lot of large organisms, like sharks and different kinds of fish, living at deep depths in the ocean are bioluminescent and capable of generating their own light. So before we get into examples of some of these bioluminescent life forms, let's just do a quick review of what causes light to be emitted. So this may look familiar, hopefully this does look familiar to you. And the emission of a photon of light, so a photon is, behaves like a wave or, or a particle, and it is the unit of light. So when light happens, when light is emitted, what is going on on an atomic level is that you have an atom, as pictured here. This is the nucleus containing the neutrons and the protons, and these are the electrons or it's one electron actually being shown, with the orbital shells, the paths around which the electrons can be thought of to orbit the nucleus. So when a photon is emitted, what's happening is an electron by some mechanism has been excited. It jumps up to a higher energy level, and it stays there because it's excited. And with the emission of a photon, what's happening is the electron jumps down and in the process loses energy, emitting that energy as a photon. This is production of light. So emission of a photon only happens when electrons jump down or fall down energy levels. How is this different to what we talked about before? Well, we did talk about this before, but just to remind you, two things can sort of happen on an atomic level with an electron. You can have a photon being absorbed by the electron or a photon being emitted by the electron. In the case of absorption, uh, an incoming photon strikes an electron, giving it more energy. The electron is excited and jumps to a higher level. 
It can only stay at that higher level for so long, however, before it loses its energy, jumps back down, and then that loss of energy, remember energy is conserved, it's, it's moved from one form or converted from one form to another, it's never destroyed. So that energy loss is emitted exactly in the energy and wavelength of the photon that you get from this falling down process. So just to recap again, the electron first to any kind of emission process, what you have is the outer orbits, which are higher energy orbits. You need more energy to get to these orbits. The electron has been excited. It's up at a higher orbit, jumps down, emits a photon, and that internal energy of the photon is exactly equal to the energy difference, the energy that the electron loses by jumping down energy levels. So this is your change in internal energy. And anytime we're talking about light and color, we're talking about a change in energy. Recall from the chemical section that we said anytime something changes color, there's probably some sort of chemical reaction happening at a molecular level. Well, this is true and also what's happening in a chemical reaction is the exchange of photons, different kinds of energies, often if it's a luminescent reaction. So on assignment one, we did have a question asking about the atom and why an atom produces only a specific set of colors. Well, that's because each atom, each molecule has a certain set of specific energy level. If you recall quantization or quantum physics, quantum physics is the idea that energies in an atom ex uh, basically exist in discrete packets. So an atom, an electron in an atom can only jump up or fall down by discrete steps of energy. So what we have in a specific kind of molecule is that jumping of electrons will either be from, say, the outermost shell to the ground state, in which case that is a lot of energy released. Think of how much energy the electron has to gain to move up to the furthest outer shell. It loses it all by jumping back down to the ground state. So this is a lot of energy. What do we know about energy and wavelength? How are those two tied together? We know that more energy, the shorter the wavelength. So something that has a transition like this, going from an outermost orbital down to uh, an innermost one, will have a ton of energy and therefore a short wavelength. And in terms of visible light, we know that a short wavelength corresponds to blue. The same is true as with red. So if the electron is making a small step, a small fall down one level, let's say, that's not a lot of energy. The wavelength will be longer and therefore you'll get something like red as the color. And luminescence itself hinges on this. This is all luminescence is about. Different changes in energy levels give you different colors of light. I just want to talk about one thing um, and clarify one thing which may seem a little bit confusing. Uh, the difference between 
luminescent surface, luminescent objects, and colored surfaces. So we talked about spectral curves. We had spectral reflectance curves, which showed you on your y-axis how much light is reflected and of what color. This is for a surface material. That is something that doesn't glow. Like this table, this is a surface material. The surface color is black. This is kind of greeny. These are all surface materials. With the luminescent materials, what's happening is an energy change from a photon. Uh, and this is quite a different process. So the molecule structure and the electronic bonds in the molecule itself basically determines the spacing of these energy levels or orbitals. And the spacing of that, remember we just saw on the previous slide, the length of the jump or the greatness of the jump tells you what color of light you get. So the spacing of energy levels in atoms and molecules gives you the substance's color. Now with luminescent color, we're talking about production of light. So the color that we see from, let's say, a luminescent dinoflagellate, that blue, is color, a light that is actually being emitted and coming to your eye as a blue photon or several blue photons the specific wavelength. This is energy being emitted with a specific wavelength, and this is the emitted light coming to your eye, whereas the colored surface, it's not emitting any light. It's absorbing light and reflecting some. So the colored surface is not an emission process. The colored surface base is based on the reflection of light. So you can think of luminescent as emitting, colored surfaces as absorbing light and reflecting specific wavelengths which give you the color. Let's show an example then of some of, some of these luminescent processes. Basically all luminescent processes follow the same general process which is that something, we don't know what, and in many cases there are many different causes of this, Something puts electrons into this high energy orbit. The electrons then drop down into the lower orbit and release a photon. So the photons that are released have that specific internal energy that the electron loses. And that amount of energy gives you the color of the photon released. An example of different sort of colors being released by different jumping of energy levels, a good way to think of it is as uh, glow sticks. You've probably seen those glow sticks, like kind of, um, they're often red or blue, sometimes green, and people sort of use them at concerts or they have halos and you, you bend it and it makes a kind of a cracking sound and it kind of lights up. Well, this is just the product of different chemicals within the glow stick itself luminescing. And I'll show you why that is. So the chemicals are luminescing, so this is called chemiluminescence. So the next time you see sort of one of those glow sticks or glow tubes, what's happening inside is you have this sort of outer enclosure, and inside the enclosure is a sort of an ampoule, which is glass, very thin glass with uh, hydrogen peroxide and fluorescent, um, sorry, hydrogen peroxide solution composed of specific different chemicals to give you different colors inside. 
when you break the glow stick or you bend it, you get this light being produced because this ampoule breaks. The hydrochloride, um, sorry, hydrogen peroxide solution spills out into the container of fluorescent sort of dye, and then that interaction produces its own light, and this gives you this fluorescent glow stick. So depending on the chemical that you put in that little glass ampoule, you'll get different colors of light. And this is the way that, um, well, this is a white glow stick. And it shows you that the white glow stick, as we know with all white light, is composed of all the different colors. Here's a spectral graph showing relative irradiance. It means how much it shines of different colors of light in a white glow stick. What makes these things glow is we had chromophores in colors. When we're talking about fluorescence, we have something called fluorophores, or the part of the molecule that makes the molecule fluoresce. And here is how you get the different colors. Again, this is not going to be tested. This is just for your information, but you can see that different colors and different sort of glow sticks are produced by using different chemicals in that little ampoule. Okay, so let's, let's talk again, get back to talking about emission. So we've talked about luminescence, we've talked about fluorescence, and we know that there, these are the two types of emission we're going to be talking about in this course. There are many other types of emission, but we're really not going to get into that because luminescence and fluorescence are really basically the ones that are important for this course, as well as incandescent emission. Incandescent emission, as the picture illustrates, your typical incandescent light bulb, what happens is electricity moves through the circuit the filament, the tungsten filament, is heated, and the hot filament glows, producing your light. So a light source, an incandescent light source, for example, a light bulb, or say the sun, produces the full spectrum of colors. Remember, this is the white light source. It gives you this continuous spectrum. We talked about this in Kirchhoff's Laws. Now, the luminescent emission is something different. Instead of giving you just a continuous spectrum and white light, what's happening is a very, very specific reaction is going on, and the light source is producing one specific color only, like neon lights, like the aurora that you see, and we'll talk about that as well, and also like nebulae, so clouds of, cosmic clouds of dust and gas give emission in specific wavelengths. It's important to remember when talking about both of these e types of emission, this law of conservation of energy, that energy isn't created or destroyed, but moves from one form to another. So if something is happening, something is losing energy or gaining energy, it goes somewhere. The lost energy goes into a photon, essentially, if you want to think of it like that. And in this case, the lost energy goes into both this photons of white light, which is the full spectrum of color, and heat. 
lot of, a lot of energy is lost in this reaction as heat. So there are very, very many causes of emission in light, but the important thing to remember about all of them is they all involve a change in energy. Now to give you a more esoteric sample of one of those causes, we have something called sonoluminescence. This is actually light produced by sound. Uh, what you, you, you can set up an experiment, well, in a proper lab, you can set up an experiment to do this where you have a container filled with water, you have a transducer that will sort of bring the acoustic, the sound waves into the water. And what happens is you basically have a sound at a certain frequency and the bubble that is super hot collapses and that collapse, that energy change, that energy release is released as light. Giving you um, some more causes of, uh, of emission. Here are a number of different causes. Not tested, so do not memorize, but this is just to give you an idea. There's chemiluminescence, there's cathode luminescence, sonoluminescence, triboluminescence, which is luminescence from friction. Um, and as you can see, all of these different kinds, bio, thermo, electro, and photoluminescence. Let's talk about one example then. Let's, let's talk about something that we probably have seen or at least seen in pictures, which is marine bioluminescence. And when you think of bioluminescent animals or organisms, you don't think of seeing them every day, but it's actually more common than you might think. In fact, below at certain depths, typically below 700 meters or so, in our seas and in our oceans, 90% of all of the species living at this depth are bioluminescent. It's very difficult for sunlight, at least certain wavelengths of sunlight, to penetrate water. So these organisms have learned and evolved to basically generate their own light. Think about wavelengths for a second and think about the, the blue wavelengths, which are short, and the red wavelengths, which are long. So when you have sunlight, and sunlight penetrates water, especially deep water, if you've ever no looked down on a boat, you can see kind of the light rays, and they stop after a while, after a certain depth. Well, what's happening here is the water is absorbing selectively different wavelengths of light. So typically, after a certain distance, water absorbs all the red, orange, yellow, sort of greeny light. Water does allow, however, blue and violet light to sort of travel through it. So what we have is, is a broad range of organisms that make use of this fact. We have fish, we have bacteria, Protoists just means single-celled organisms, jellyfish, squid, a number of different things, which I'll show you examples of in a moment. But bioluminescence in the, all of these examples are produced by the species themselves. It's the organism itself that is the light generation mechanism. 
This is a spectrum showing you our typical continuous spectrum here from about 460 to 635 nanometers, so purple through all the way to red. As I've said, water will pretty much absorb after a certain, through a certain distance, will absorb this part of the spectrum. You will not see yellow light shone through water after a long distance. You will have the ability to see the blue and the violet light, and UV radiation also penetrates to very deep depths. So this is the best wavelength for light transmission in any kind of ocean water, and this is also the wavelength that marine organisms have basically evolved to see. And so it's not surprising then to find that the bioluminescent marine organisms, you see they're always kind of bluey purple, and this is why. They've uh, developed this kind of bioluminescent reaction to produce, to emit photons at that wavelength. What, why would they do that? What is the point from an evolutionary perspective? Well, there's actually lots of reasons. Um, one reason is attracting prey. Another reason is sort of distracting prey, so startling prey or distracting it by making it follow something else. Some organisms actually have parts of their body that are bioluminescent that can detach such that they can be carried away and a predator may follow the detached part of the body instead of following the actual organism itself. So it's a self-defense mechanism. Uh, they also can use this kind of luminescence. If you have a very bright area, they can use it for camouflage. And they can also use it for communication and also for attracting mates. And, and actually, if you've seen a big firefly display ever, that's really what's going on. It's, it's a sort of a big mating dance. Um, it's the males who are luminescing to attract females. So I'll give you a couple examples of some, some very curious creatures that are bioluminescent. Uh, the first one is called the anglerfish. And this picture doesn't really quite show it, but the anglerfish, if you look it up online, you'll see it has these absolutely massive teeth. It's a very scary looking uh, thing. What it also has, though, is this strange kind of, of a limb. It's a limb which is kind of like this. It looks like a string-like appendage with a sac that contains a bioluminescent bacteria. This is the lure, basically. It's to lure um, prey in. So what's happening is with an anglerfish, it uses this bioluminescent esca. That's the name of the appendage. It's an esca to lure prey in. So prey come, they're attracted by the light in this sort of fishing hook, esca, and then the anglerfish just eats it. So it's quite interesting. Uh, another kind of fish is a lanternfish. And the lanternfish actually, its bioluminescence is distributed in certain patterns in its body. And we think this is probably because this is how they attract mates for a large degree. And it's also because Recall I had said that camouflage can be used. Luminescence can be used to camouflage an animal. So what lanternfish do is use something called counter-illumination. 
counterillumination is a camouflage tactic, and basically they kind of like a chameleon, they adapt to the the brightness, the ambient brightness of the area that they are in, so they, they cannot easily be seen. Now a number of marine organisms do this, including squid. So this is an actual, this is a little bit hard to see with all the lights on at the front, but you can see this massive sort of outline of a massive squid with small bioluminescent nescent dots on it. It uses these dots for counter illumination if it's in a sort of area of bright water to camouflage itself. And here's the whole underside of the squid being brightly lit up in this sort of counter illumination display. Another fish looking like a dragon and being called a black dragonfish uh, also has this similar kind of bioluminescent property, but you can see this one, it's not very blue, it doesn't glow really blue, it has different kinds of photophores. We call photophores, we had fluorophores, chromophores, and photophores. So by extension, photophores then means light producing unit of our molecule. It uses this basically for defense, when it's disturbed, it lights up all down the length of its body and in this, this appendix, again, which is called a barbel. Okay, and then we have another small squid. This particular squid, the reason why I'm showing this as opposed to the other one, this is a small squid, but what's interesting about this picture is it has different kinds of photophores. It has these kind of bean-shaped ones here in the limbs, and it also has sort of longer, more diffuse ones in the body itself. And this goes all along the underside of the body. And with squid, especially a lot of the giant squid, are bioluminescent. So it is normally, you can see why people would write Jules Verne, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, about these monster squids with uh, strange properties, because a lot of them are massive, and bioluminescent. We'll see an example of one of them in a second. This is a sea cucumber. So sea cucumbers are living organisms and they also can be bioluminescent. And basically what happens is this is an example of one of these living organisms that can detach part of itself. So a sea cucumber becomes bioluminescent and basically discards part of itself. So onto bodies of fish, so that the fish swim away. When the fish swim away, the predator, who would have normally eaten the sea cucumber, swims away after the fish who are now glowing because the sea cucumber has shed part of itself onto the fish and then the sea cucumber can crawl slowly away. And here's an example of one of those monster squids. This is a vampire squid. Uh, and it is almost completely covered in these photophores. So it, it essentially glows. And the way it glows is really interesting because it does this to sort of mesmerize or stop predators and mesmerize prey as well. 
And what happens is when the posture of the squid changes, the light flashes with it. So it has this sort of mesmeric display of flashing light as the squid moves around. So it hypnotizes its victims. Okay. So we're going to have this short um, video now on bioluminescence. And uh, then we can answer any more questions about the strike, but we're probably going to end most of it there shortly for today. So let's see this. This episode is supported by CuriosityStream. For centuries, humans have been harnessing chemistry to create explosive, awe-inspiring light shows. But our celebrations aren't Earth's only dazzling light displays. Nature's got fireworks of its own. Nearly all life on Earth is ultimately powered by light, but some special species have figured out how to make light for themselves. Our planet is full of creatures with the ability to bioluminesce. But not every animal that glows is bioluminescent. Animals like these jellyfish are fluorescent. They only glow after absorbing and emitting other light. But bioluminescent species carry their own light factories. Inside their bodies, chemicals called luciferins, along with oxygen and some ATP, react together with the help of an enzyme called luciferase to give off light. And you can see this chemistry in action right before sunset on a summer night. Fireflies aren't really flies at all. They're beetles. Their nightly dances are stunningly beautiful, but that light show is really one big mating display. And it's usually male fireflies that do the flying, while females sit and enjoy the show. Firefly bioluminescence is a form of sexual selection, like a peacock's feathers or an elk's antlers. Brighter and more intense light signals that you're a healthy mate with good genes. Of course, like any dance, you have to get the timing right too. And each species has their own rhythm. Males of the species Photinus pyralis always flash while flying up. If she sees his signal, two seconds later the female blinks in return. The male glides down, then blinks again, homing in on the female's response and hoping there's a mating opportunity waiting for him when he gets there. But the line between love and death is a fine one. Females of the genus Photurus have earned the name Femme Fatale Fireflies. They mimic the flash timing of other species' females, luring in unsuspecting suitors and eating them. They harvest chemicals from the male's bodies to repel their main predator, spiders. From fungi to worms, this ability to create chemical light has evolved independently many times. But to really appreciate nature's fireworks show, we have to take a plunge. Oceans contain 99% of the habitable space on the planet, and most of Earth's bioluminescence happens down there. It's hard to believe, but researchers estimate three-fourths of all species in the ocean produce their own light, and at every depth, tiny marine plankton that are found throughout Earth's oceans. You can't see them right now, but watch this. If they're disturbed at night, they light up. They make a different luciferin molecule than fireflies, one that emits blue light. Now, this blue glow can be seen in crashing waves in the wakes of ships, but why would a creature too small to swim from a predator want to advertise its location? 
Well, have you ever heard the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? Well, if a shrimp or other predator disturbs the dinos, light can attract the attention of things that eat shrimp. It's like a chemical burglar alarm. Ocean species put bioluminescence to use in dozens of ways. Some prey species, like this shrimp, spew luminescent clouds, escaping behind a shiny smoke screen. Some squid even sacrifice entire limbs so the rest of them can escape, like light-up lizard tails. Bioluminescence is even used for camouflage, matching the color and brightness of sunlight to mask a silhouette from below. Of course, hunters have mastered the light game too. Some use it as a lure, while some flash to stun their prey. Some, like this deep-sea dragonfish, even use bioluminescent patches as searchlights in the dark. What's incredible is that even in habitats where the sun almost never reaches, light has become an essential part of life. Whether you're at the bottom of the ocean or on your back porch, you can appreciate some of nature's brightest ideas. Stay curious. This episode is brought to you by CuriosityStream, a subscription stream. Okay. So that is, uh, is a biofluorescence overview. It's not just marine organisms that biofluoresce. But one thing I want to say before closing off is in the video, uh, he showed an image of jellyfish, which were fluorescent. There are bioluminescent jellyfish and biofluorescent jellyfish. Something called biofluorescence is, again, it's like the process of fluorescence. So biofluorescence in marine organisms is the process by which the organism absorbs incoming UV light, because UV light can penetrate down to very, very deep depths in the oceans. So basically you have an absorption of UV light and then a re-emission in the visible spectrum. An example of one of these types of organisms is a biofluorescent swell shark. So there's now, we, it was a relatively recent discovery and now we know that there are almost 200, over 180 biofluorescent species, including jellyfish, in our seas and in our oceans. Uh, we talked about fluorescence. In the case of biofluorescence, the fluorescence or the fluorofluorophores come in the form of various types of fluorescent proteins. And you can see, again, remember we said fluorescence usually is kind of greenish, has a greenish hue. That's because of what is happening, the mechanism of the interaction that causes a different wavelength of light to be emitted by the electron. So what happens in these biofluorescent situations is that longer wavelengths of light, not just that blue of the biofluorescence, are emitted. So you get yellows, you get reds, you get greens. Some species actually have these yellow filters over their eyes so that they can better see yellow light, which is easily lost with increasing depth in the oceans. And this is because, as we mentioned before, these longer wavelengths just don't travel through water very far because the water has uh, the property of basically absorbing these longer wavelengths. So next class, we're going to talk about uh, biofluorescence, bioluminescence actually, bioluminescence in plants. And specifically, currently at MIT and at other research centers around the world, uh, researchers are synthesizing 
bioluminescent plants, bioluminescent trees, bioluminescent uh, small plants. And the idea is to use these sort of bioluminescent plants as light sources at night. So that would be a very interesting thing. We may end up with an avatar-like planet if uh, some have already been engineered, but if we have uh, the next generation of street lights may well turn out to be your trees, which just suddenly glow from biofluorescence. So more on that next time and a little more on how biofluorescent works. So that's about it. Have a good weekend. Um, with the strike, if you have any questions, please email me. I will be continuing next week.